If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. The Lord this week, you know, the Lord has a sense of humor. Somebody had asked me, I guess there was somebody in Angelo that won several million dollars, I think, this week. I was thinking, man, that would be great just for money to... I was looking for a book last night, and I found $4 that I used as a bookmark. So, looky there. And I ended up using it as a bookmark here. wasn't expecting that. John chapter 3, if you would stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples, starting in verse 22, went into Judea, the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and uh, was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aeonion in Siloam because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not been uh, yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between, the, some, between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was baptizing, he, excuse me, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God For He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on Him. This is God's Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into Your presence and we ask Your grace and mercy that you would inscribe the truth that is written here upon all of our hearts father i pray that you would humble us under the weight of your word for your glory that we might worship you today in light of your word in spirit and in truth in christ's name we pray amen you may be seated well friends this week has been difficult very hard in many ways it's been hard to see and to hear about all of the brutality uh, against the people of israel Uh, in unspeakable ways. Uh, People are suffering there in Israel and in the Middle East. 
not only the people of Israel, but also to hear of the way that uh, Christians in particular areas are suffering as they continue to take the gospel into that uh, land. It's hard to, to also to see the, the foolish rhetoric that's going on in our institutions of higher education and, and in our streets in response to this kind of brutality. I, many of us will remember uh, the days after 9-11 and how quickly we came together nationally and understood that the kind of human suffering that we were seeing was it was something that drew us together and yet we live in a time when when there is so much moral evacuation that people can look at at individuals being brutalized and somehow give credence to why that's happening it's been particularly hard in our local context i know for many of you because i've spoken with you throughout this past week difficult decisions that have to be made um some looking for jobs. Uh, this morning as we were in Sunday school, Libby uh, Kendrick uh, found out that her father, uh, who was diagnosed with cancer some time ago, has received a diagnosis that that cancer has returned. It's a difficult reality to bear. And of course, uh, Mrs. Story lost her precious son this week. Uh, we, we bear burdens. We, we all live in a, a difficult uh, world. And there's ebbing and flowing of the pain that we experience. Uh, so we experience all of these things in a world that is broken. So we have our own difficulty, but we live that out in a world that is utterly broken to the point, and I don't know if some of you, I was told this morning and haven't had time to really read for myself, but even with the, the conflict that's going on in the Middle East, uh, that Iran has now said that they're going to join in in the fight if Israel does uh, commit ground troops into to Gaza. So, so, so the world is a, a broken place. And I don't have to illustrate that. We all feel that. That makes this reality all the more joyful. The, the great joy today is that in the face of so much suffering and so much loss, we can come and consider the reality of what God has spoken over us, His people. Uh, we come and we remember that last week we considered the high-handed offense of unbelief that, that God sent His Son into the world, but yet there's many people today that don't believe upon His Son. Unbelief mars the human race. It stifles our flourishing. It causes us to be at enmity with God and with one another. But brothers and sisters today, if you are here and you are believing in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, and that alone for everlasting salvation, then no matter what we face, collectively or individually, uh, can rob us of the joy of knowing that we are the most favored of all the earth, that we are the beloved of God, that we come believing today by grace alone through faith alone. So we come rejoicing that God has set us free from unbelief to trust in Him, to trust His Word, and to rest in the work of His Son and the power of His Spirit. Now that doesn't remove all of the pain. It doesn't remove all of the difficulty. But it does remove the daunting thought that the pain is all that there is. There actually is a glorious day yet ahead. There is a day when we will be set free from all of the turmoil of this life. One day, our faith will be made sight just a little longer, and we will be before Him for all of eternity. 
And really, I think that's all of what this gospel is focused on to this point. Even though we deserve the wrath of God, even though we live in a world that is beset with sin, that, that is, is, is dead and dying, that even though we, we, in our moral responsibility, deserve the just punishment of God, we hear this glorious truth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. God has sent His only Son into the world that we who believe upon Him might live. The only Son. The only Son with the Father. The only being to ever have a relationship, to ever have sonship with the Father took on flesh to make us alive unto God. And so John writes to us in Verse 16 of chapter 1, for from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. The entire Gospel of John leans into this end that we would find ourselves believing and that we would be reminded that God has lavished us with His grace. Uh, verse 31 of, again of John chapter 20, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The great offer of salvation has come. It has been announced to the entire world. Jesus has come into the world. He has died and He has ascended that we might live. What a joy that is. In Christ, friends, we don't merely have a gospel of straighten up and fly right. In Christ, we don't merely have a call the way the liberals tell us that we must just look to Jesus and model His behavior. Well, one, good luck with that. Two, to, to look to Jesus merely to model His morality uh, is, is to fall into uh, moralism. And that doesn't save. We also don't come to Christ merely just to know a set of facts about Him. Uh, the, the church doesn't gather just so that we can accumulate knowledge. Now, now that's part of why we gather. We want to grow in our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not knowledge that is detached from the saving work of Christ. Because just a mere knowledge would leave us with dead orthodoxy. But friends, what the whole chapter of uh, uh, John chapter 3 tells us is this glorious truth that Jesus has come not merely to give us an example, not merely to lay out a philosophy of life or a, a, a set of facts, but Jesus has come to give us new and eternal life. What a joy that reality is. Is that what you understand the Christian life to be, beloved? Do you understand that the Christian life is not merely straighten up and fly right, but that the Christian life is a life lived in light of the new life that God has given to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Unbelief, as we studied it last week, can be a great barrier to that new life. We see the reality that Jesus came to His own people, but they didn't receive Him in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. And so what we've been looking at in, in chapter 3 is, is a, a case study of that unbelief. Nicodemus was one of these people that did not believe at this point. Now, we can't give up on Nicodemus. 
Uh, God is still authoring his story throughout his lifetime. But when we find him in John chapter 3, here is the learned man of Israel, the teacher of the people, the one who has been enlightened. If you wanted to be enlightened in this particular day and time, you would go talk to Nicodemus. He was the one who knew everything. Uh, he was the, the, the scribe of scribes. He, he was the teacher of all teachers. And here he comes to Jesus. And he calls him a great teacher. He acknowledges the miracles of Christ, but he doesn't fully believe upon him at this moment. He, he doesn't fully ascribe that Jesus is the Son of, of God. And Jesus shows him how this uh, belief comes only, not by volition, not by our intellect, not by our moral reasoning, but that belief that is saving in the Lord Jesus Christ only comes by way of regeneration. You see, Nicodemus' problem was not ultimately that he didn't have the right facts. It's not that he didn't assimilate those facts correctly. It's not that he didn't make a decision. Nicodemus' problem wasn't ultimately unbelief, although he does come un, uh, without belief. His problem is deeper. It, it reaches down into the core of who he is to his nature. Apart from the regenerating power of God giving new life to Nicodemus, Nicodemus would never believe. And then the, 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 the root cause of this problem, the root sin of this particular issue, and the, the primary manifestation of that wretched nature that we all share is the same problem that we find John's disciples facing here in the verses that we've read this morning. It's the same problem that the pastor of Providence Baptist Church at 810 Austin Street faces. In his own life, it's the same problem that his wife and children face. It's the same problem that every one of the deacons of this church face. It's the same problem that every member of this church faces. It's the same problem that every human being faces. And the problem here, in John chapter 3, I think both in the life of Nicodemus and in the life of the disciples of John, is plain, old-fashioned pride. We all face this. We all face times in our life of just being overwhelmed by indwelling pride in our hearts and lives. Pride of spiritual standing. Pride over our intellectual abilities. Pride over our achievements. Pride over our families. Pride over our morality. Pride over our own understanding. You know, one of the things that's amazing about pride is people can be prideful about their humility. Isn't that amazing? Leave it to human beings. I'm the most humble man. Yeah, anyway. We are all proud people. And that's what's going on in verse 26. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going with him. Uh, pay attention to that last phrase. All are going to him. Think about that. What an exaggeration that is. Because we know from the full biblical narrative that not all people were going to Him. You see how pride will take a particular situation and pride has this mischievous way of exaggerating the realities around it. Because self becomes large and everything revolves in that direction. And so here, pridefully, the disciples of John point out to Jesus, everyone is following Him. That wasn't true at all, but what, 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 what is true and what we all need this morning, every one of us, is 
instruction from the way that John responds to this provocation of pride. Uh, Look with me in verses 27 through 30. John answered, Oh, for grace that we would answer this way. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who was the bride, is, uh, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Those are amazing words. Every Christian needs to have these words etched on our heart. This, this sin of pride is ultimately, we understand, from the garden. As Satan tempts Adam and Eve and he he questions Eve, has God really said? And he gives the false promise that, look, if if you just sin, if you just do this thing, you will be like Him. Pride is ultimately under uh, the the, the forms of the different sin that are expressed in our lives. And pride goes back to our first parents and to the first sin. Nothing more plagues the church today than pride. If you want to know why is it that the church is not completely unified, well, one, it's because we're not glorified. And one of the besetting problems of people that have not uh, come to glory is that we're prideful people. Uh, Now, there are other problems as well. We don't have full understanding and knowledge of the Word. Everyone struggles because of the noetic fall with understanding the Word in all of its fullness. Uh, but, but the root problem here is, is pride for every one of us. J.C. Ryle, as I was reading, and, and friends, I will tell you these passages to read what different people, uh, men, uh, throughout church history have written on this passage. is fascinating. Uh, Ryle, he points out that here we have an example of the partisan spirit that plagues the church. People come to the church and, and, and they, they, they only want things their way. That they, they will glorify the Lord as long as you will agree with them on everything. Well, that's not really glorifying the Lord at all. That's glorifying yourself. As long as everybody agrees with me and my particular viewpoint on this or that issue, then I will praise God with you. Well, friends, uh, is our praise not built upon the sufficiency and the finished work of the person and and, and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not on our complete agreement. We are fallen creatures and we shouldn't come with our prideful attitudes demanding that we all agree. And and, and friends, here's the reality. There's tensions in the Bible. I I have taught for the better part of the past 10 years that I believe doctrine matters. And and I will never, by God's grace, uh, Lord willing, shrink away from that. But there is a prioritizing of doctrine. There is an understanding that, you know, it's interesting that I think one of the chief doctrines we need to understand after we come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that, that our salvation is completely dependent upon God. It's something that He does and He does alone. We are not saved by our doctrine. We are saved by grace. That's why people all the time, they say, well, Jay, you're, you're a Calvinist. Do you believe that people who are not Calvinists can be saved? Yeah, absolutely I do. Sure. They're just all saved in the Calvinistic way. <laughs> They're all saved by grace. They just have not come to an understanding of that. 
And, and isn't that a wonderful reality? I, I think of people in my life who would have never understood some of the theological categories that God in His kindness has allowed me to, to wrestle with and traffic in. My, my dear great-grandmother who, listen, she read her Bible faithfully, but if you would have ever asked her about the hypostatic union, she would have gotten you a, an ice pack and told you to sit down. Don't, don't hurt yourself. Um, we need to have robust doctrine, but we need to come in humility, not in pride. Uh, we need to come uh, with an understanding that it is only by the power of the Spirit of God and the grace of God and the decrees of God that we have been born of God and are part of the family of God. Nothing so lowers the church than the partisan spirit. Uh, and here's the reality. I'm not picking on anybody today. I'm picking on all of us. Because the partisan spirit that, that is alive and well in the life of the church is, is alive and well because it's in every human heart. So every system, every theological viewpoint has a degree of pride because it has sinners that are wrestling with the truths. And so we need to repent of this reality. We need to aim at not having a partisan spirit. We need to live under the substantial graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's amazing here is that when John is told that Jesus is baptizing and that everyone is following after him and his disciples are so jarred by this that people would be following Jesus, which, you know, we've been told that John is, his whole purpose is to witness to Christ. So if everyone is following Jesus, John would say, well, good day. That's fantastic. You know, John doesn't here engage in the pettiness. He doesn't engage... Uh, with a prideful response, but rather he silences those who come to him. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given uh, him from heaven. He makes it unequivocal and clear. The greatest problem of pride is that it doesn't lean into the graces of, uh, of Christ. It separates us from them. It separates us from the person and the work and the glory of Christ. Because at the moment that we're prideful, that we're concerned with our glory and with our system and with our particular vantage point, we are no longer looking at Jesus. We're no longer trusting in Him. We're no longer glorying in the Savior. We're no longer beholding the second member of the Trinity and all that He has accomplished for us. We are consumed with self. The, the danger particularly of religious pride is that it lulls you to sleep. It causes you to rest in what you think and what you feel and what you experience and not in Christ. You see, there's a danger of being religious instead of actually being a Christian. And friends, there's a very real assertion that is given by Jesus that on the day of judgment there are going to be many people who call themselves Christians and on that day in the final analysis he will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. There is a major distinction between prideful religious people and those who are surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ and who are actually in Him. You see, religious, the, the religious person feels that everything is well. After all, I participate in all of the bake sales down at the church. I do all of the good deeds. I've been a member of a Baptist church in good standing for most of my adult life. 
That's what a religious person does. They depend upon what they have. I have what I need. I have my own righteousness. My theology is right. Friends, I can tell you this. I love theological rigor. And I believe that theology, Brad and I both agree on this, theology matters, doesn't it, Brad? Amen. But I think we would both also agree that we have blind spots in our theology, that our theology, that is how we conceive as finite creatures, is flawed. Now, when I figure out those, those, those frailties and those flaws, I seek to repent and believe what the Bible teaches. That we all come with uh, flawed thinking at certain levels. But, but, but the, this, the religious person is living a life of self-satisfaction. My way of thinking is right. My works are good enough. And ultimately what is happening there is that individual is not resting in Christ. They're living a pride-filled life. Think about the example we're given in Luke 18, and you'll remember this narrative. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. There is the prideful person. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's an outworking of pride to look on other people and, hmm, that's pride. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." The, the religious person does not need in his own mind the forgiveness of Christ or the filling of Christ. He's sufficient in his own works, in his own ability. He is righteous unto himself, and so he lives and experiences pride. And the reality is this happens not only with our own self-righteousness or our, our, our view of our, our doctrinal um, erudition, it also can happen, and I think often does in America today, when people depend on their experiences. People will come and say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I had an experience when I was eight years old. I know that I'm a Christian. Okay, well, have you repented and believed at any point in your life? No, but I, I, I made a decision. I had an experience. I had a feeling. Well, well, tell me about your relationship to the Lord today. Tell me about your walk with Him. Tell me, about, tell, tell me about your growth in Christ. Well, none of that matters. I have an experience. Friends, the Bible doesn't, doesn't equate to that kind of thinking. That's a prideful response to the Gospel to think because I had an experience, I'm saved. Friends, certainly there is an experience. The new birth is a radical transformation and an experience in our lives that comes in a variety of ways but issues forth in our being enamored with the person and the work of Christ, being full of joy at what Jesus has done to take us from being condemned under our own sin and showing us our wretchedness that we might turn in repentance and faith and follow Him. And that not once and done, but throughout our lifetimes. You see, the Gospel brings, as Martin Lloyd-Jones has told us, an interruption, a disruption into our life. The, the gospel interrupts everything about our experiences, our knowledge, our righteousness, our being self-satisfied. And it tells us that we need 
this Christ. But the, the prideful purpose, the person hates this interrupt, uh, interruption. Uh, what's happening when, when ultimately the gospel is being proclaimed, when the death, burial, and resurrection and the necessity to believe upon Jesus is proclaimed, is people's lives are being disturbed. And the prideful person hates to have that disruption come. The Bible teaches from the beginning to the end of salvation, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible teaches that, that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Religious people don't like that. Because religious people want to add to the gospel their works, their goodness. Religious people want to come, and friends, there's a thousand variations of this. And it happens in our own hearts if we're not careful. The, the, the religious prideful heart comes before the living God and says, God, have I got something for you. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at all that I have done. Look at how much I have volunteered. Look at the sermons I've preached. Look at the prayers that I've prayed. But the tax collector just beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me. A, a sinner. And so we, we've got to come back to the, the gospel as we understand it, that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And you know what happens any time that the gospel is proclaimed in that way? That without equivocation, our salvation is dependent not upon us, but upon God and God alone. In every single generation, when the gospel is proclaimed in that way, somebody's going to rise up and they're going to say that that is something new. What is being preached from that pulpit is not what I heard prior. The, the gospel being preached uh, in light of the free grace of God, His determining work in bringing us to salvation, that is, that's new. That, that's not the gospel that I understand. I understand a gospel where I believe in my own ability and then I go on keeping myself in the faith. That, that's the kind of, of gospel that the world knows. And, and the second that you pull works, the works of man out of the equation, I guarantee you prideful religious people will say, well, that's not enough. That's not the gospel I understand. But friends, that isn't uh, something new. It's not something that, that ultimately has been concocted. And when, when, when Martin Luther um, nailed his 95 thesis to the door there at Wittenberg, and he began to preach and to teach and to herald that the just shall live by faith, which is not something that Martin Luther came up with. It's something that God came down with. God is the one who has determined before the foundation of the world that His people will live by faith and that that faith is something that He gives by His grace alone. But as, as Luther started teaching that reality, what happened is all of the, the religious people and their popery and all of that stuff, um, they were incensed by this. And they started to... They put, they put the emperor against Him and all of the civil authorities. He's teaching something new. He wasn't teaching anything new at all. Augustine preached this same gospel in the fourth century. This is the same gospel that the apostles heralded. And you know what's interesting? If you think that that's only like a, a 1517 issue in the Reformation, you're wrong. 
Uh, because when George Whitfield came to this continent and he started preaching standing from rocks and little outcrops all throughout uh, the New England area that God saves by His free uh, grace alone, that, that, that to be in Christ meant that you needed to be birthed anew, that you needed to be regenerated, that you couldn't just... Here was the problem in New England when, when, when George Whitfield showed up. Pride. And the pride said that you can be a Christian by living a Christian life. You can be a Christian merely by adding Christian principles of life to your worldview. You, you can just do the things that Christians do and that makes you a Christian. Well, Whitfield came and he started proclaiming this gospel that you needed to be born again. That, that you needed an in, uh, indwelling work of the Spirit. That you needed to be regenerated. And people said, Whitfield's teaching something new. The religious people especially uh, were, were, were incensed that Whitfield would, would, would teach that, that this, this new fingled way of seeing regeneration. But friends, I, I just here's the reality. If you read John chapter 3, it's not new. It's the gospel. It's the same gospel that we've always had. But what happens uh, in the church, encyclically, is God pours out His Spirit. People are born anew. The gospel goes forth. It's being proclaimed. And then what happens is we lull ourselves to sleep in pride in thinking that we can add to the work of God. And so, so what happens is what we do becomes bigger and bigger. As long as we can have a big show and we can draw a big crowd and we get, get people to make a lot of decisions and we, 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 if all of those things are healthy and well, what ends up having to, uh, being pushed out is what? It's the Gospel. And it happens all the time. And it happens so often that I believe we're not really good at seeing how often it happens. We're so used to people taking the gospel and marginalizing it because we're so prideful that we forget the reality that, friends, the only hope that our nation has, the only hope, quite frankly, that this world has, the only hope that Israel has is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the reality that we must be committed to as a church. And if we, if we qualify that with anything, then we stand in a prideful position. If, if we come to the Gospel and we say, yes and amen. Now, I just want to add a few things to this. Now, now, all of us are prone to do that. Because we all have things that we want to find comfort in outside of Christ. That, that is called sin. That is what, listen, when we look at uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, and we see the... I mean, listen, we live on this side of it. So as, as Eve is being tempted, I mean, we're all reading those verses going, don't do it. Don't do this. Promise you, this doesn't turn out well. And there's Eve, Adam and Eve. We just want a little autonomy. We'll take, the, the, we'll take God in the cool of the day, but we just kind of we want to be like Him, and we, we just want to do our own thing. Well, friends, that is every one of us. We will take the gospel, and if we're not careful, we'll then go on to add to it. And we need to pray that God would guard us from that kind of mentality, that kind of 
heart attitude. We, we need to be people that continually preach the need for rebirth, for regeneration, that, that our gospel is not one of come and live right. Our gospel is one of being b- born again. Friends, I can prove that, that humanity is radically depraved at this one point. If you look back over church history, you will see Again, the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church being everyone who is gathered together. The invisible church being those who God has actually redeemed. Those who are actually enrolled in heaven. And and what the visible church, those who claim to be Christians but aren't actually born again, often want to do is just add a little bit to the preaching of the gospel. We can take some preaching, just make sure it's short, and make sure we have a lot of good songs, and make sure they're very emotional, and make sure that the, cost, the gospel and the cross isn't the center of what we're doing. Uh, that, that happens all the time to the point that if you really look, if you look in, in, in the past 2,000 years and you, you calculate together everyone who would call themselves Christians, and you would look at the heart of what they're doing, do you know what is odd in that gathering? The gospel. The gospel becomes so odd to what is called Christianity because we in our pride think that we can do better in our religion. But I promise you we can't. Friends, this morning I stand here knowing with everything in me that there is nothing more glorious than the Gospel. There is nothing better than what Christ has done. Listen, on our best day, when we do the maximum good for our neighbor and when we, we seek to glorify God the most, that is like infinitesimal compared to what Christ has done. In fact, it's all stained with sin apart from Christ. So again, uh, we come to this reality that the church when justification by faith alone is laid before her, often says, well, that's something new. And religious people get mad and they leave. Well, why? Because, because religious people don't want to be confronted. They don't, want to be, they don't want to be troubled. And more than anything, do you know what religious people hate? Being humbled. And I, in the words of the fine theologian Dallas Johnson, I guarantee it that it is absolutely not what our flesh wants to be humbled in the sight of God. There there is a a very, I think, dangerous statement that comes in the life of a church, uh, the church from time to time, and it's this. Well, I've always believed this. Friends, none of us have always believed the gospel. Now, you may be an individual that uh, you were saved at a young age and you don't remember exactly the point of your conversion, But at some point, God has regenerated each one of us. We've had to learn Christ. We've had to be humbled under the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, the heralding of the evangel. And so none of us come into this life religiously well, faithful to God. Rather, we all need to be disturbed. We all need to be humbled. You see, one of the things that that shows that we're, we're prideful and boy, if this is not the case in my own stinking life, um, is when we're disturbed by things. Now, when, we are, when, when, when God is trying to humble us, when He is trying to teach us something, often we get agitated because we don't want to be humbled in that way. We want to live life according to what we understand. 
God, in His graciousness and His kindness to His children throughout the centuries, has been disturbing His children, has been interrupting them, so that they might live in light of His goodness, His grace, and His glory, and that alone. Now, look back with me with that in mind, and, and look at how John is not disturbed at all. Remember, we, we learned that John is a witness sent explicitly for the purpose of pointing to Jesus. And, and, and look in John chapter 1 with me, just to get background before we go into our verses further. I love the way that John chapter 1 d- describes the way that, that, that John responds to the identity of Christ. And this should be true for every believer. Verse 20 of chapter 1. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John confessed, he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the second member of the Trinity. The the problem with, 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 with our pride entering the church is that we don't do that. We walk in and, oh, I may not be the second member of the Trinity, but I want to try out for the fourth member of the Trinity. And friends, we've all done it. We've, we've all looked at the church and said, oh, this blessed church in all of her mess. I have a perfect idea and I'll fix it. Any person that has ever walked into the gathering of the saints of God and thought to themselves, I will fix anything, is fixing to mess it up. One of the freeing realities in pastoral ministry, and I think in all of our lives, is getting to the point in life where you you resign your, your, your running the universe. You realize that it is only God who can do the work that is set before the church. It is He who ultimately brings new life to His people and carries them along. You know, the reality that, that we find in verse 20 of chapter 1 that he confessed and did not deny, but no, he confessed, I am not the Christ. Do you know why John was able to respond that way? Because he had a true estimation of himself. He was not an ambitious man. And and friends, I would would contend with you this morning that ambition is one of the ugliest things in the church. When, When we come into the church and we have a plan and we have a desire and we want to do things our way, and friends, I'm preaching to myself this morning. I promise you, when our ambitions overload the Word of God, when they enter into the equation at all, things are not going to go well. But, but John wasn't that way. John had a true understanding that he was not the Christ. That, that he was merely a sinful man. And so John's first statement is so telling of this humility. Look in verse 27 of chapter 3 here. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John John acknowledges everything that we have is from God. I, I love the way that God in His Word makes everything so plain and so clear. If this were to read that, that we can't have much without God, humanity would think, would be left to think, yeah, but most of it's from us. But what John is saying here is there is nothing. Do you feel that breath that you just took? That you don't have from, with, apart from God. Your spiritual life doesn't happen apart from God. Contrary to what most people are preaching this morning, you do not find yourself believing apart from the graces of God. 
It is not you that brings yourself to Jesus. It is the Spirit that brings you to Christ. And what a joy it is to know then. here's, Here's the problem that we have in our thinking. When we hear... A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. When we hear that, if we despair, it's because we have a low view of who God is. But when we understand that God is infinite, that He he is eternal, that He is wise, that He is loving, that He is kind, and on and on and on, when we understand the grandeur of God, when we come to a statement that says you don't have anything apart from God, we can rejoice. Because God knows exactly what we need, and He knows exactly how we need it. What we don't need to... Friends, one of the things that plagues our culture is this idea that we can be self-sufficient, self-made. I have never met a self-made man outside of Christ. Jesus is the only, and in the fullest terms possible, self-made man. Jesus is the one who is sufficient in all ways. And here, John ultimately knows the difference between Jesus and himself. And friends, I would argue with you this morning that we can say, well, I know the difference between Jesus and me. But what about on those mornings when you wake up and you think, oh man, I'm a sinner. I need to do better so that God is pleased with me. That kind of thinking is forgetting its amnesia of the gospel and it forgets the reality that you're not Jesus, Jesus is Jesus. And that God is only pleased through Christ, not by you. There's never been a day that that you, and in the moment, even the moments where you go, man, I preached a great sermon. Look at this, look at all that I gave. Now, none none of us do that out loud. Our mamas have taught us better than that. But our hearts still do that, don't they? And on those days, we are also forgetting the gospel. Because God's never looked at our works and went, Woo, I'm glad I saved Dallas. Boy, I'd have been missing something without him. No. It is only through Christ. And John knew that he was not Christ. Oh, for grace that we as a church would understand we're not Jesus. We are creatures of the dirt. And our rotten hearts reflect that reality. But we have Jesus. We have Him by grace. John knew who he, who he was. And that's not to downplay John, in Matthew chapter 11, we, we, we're given these words from Christ. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there uh, has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Some people have uh, tried to remove the word John from that verse. There are no greater than the Baptist, but never mind. That's, that's also Pride. Uh, there's a major distinction here, though, between Jesus and John. Now, now, John and Jesus share some similarities. They have miraculous announcement of their birth. They're roughly the same ages. Both of them, in the course of their life, are executed. But look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is 
above all. What, what John understood is that one was from above and the other was not. One is from the earth in the sense that he was born in the natural way. John knows who he is because he was born through the natural means of procreation and he is still in Adam apart from Christ. There is no hope for John apart from Jesus. But Christ, on the other hand, is completely different. Christ's birth was not natural. He was the Word made flesh. He was the only begotten of the Father. He was the second member of the Trinity that took on human flesh that sin might be put to death in His body. Augustine has this fantastic statement, and I have to confess that this week Augustine was a dear friend as I worked through this passage, and I don't agree with Dear Augustine, on a lot of things, but, but from time to time, he just says them things that make you go, yeah. And this is one of them. He says, is he to be compared with the one who, because, now listen to this, is he to be compared with the one because he wished to be born, was born? Think about that. Jesus was born not because his mom and daddy. Jesus was born because he wished to be born. Just marinate on that glory for a minute. Jesus was born because he intended to be. And he goes on, and this is great. And by a new birth, therefore, because of a new kind of infant was born, our new birth is only possible because there was a new kind of birth that took place on the earth. Because Jesus' birth was different from all of ours. And listen to this statement. For both of the Lord's births, the divine and the human birth, are out of the ordinary. In the divine birth, He has no mother. In the human birth, He has no father. Isn't that a glorious statement? The reality that, that, that the Son is, is begotten of the Father and that relationally, but that is not a, 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 a conjugal type being the, the, the only begotten Son. This is eternal generation type language. He, he, he doesn't have a mother in the sense of his, his sonship to the Father. That is a relational reality, but there's not a mother in that uh, equation. And then in his in his incarnation, in taking on human flesh, in his human birth, he had no physical father. And what John knows is John's one of the rest of us. John is just like you and I. John is full of sin. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And Jesus is God in flesh. And so here is one who has been humbled. He knows that he has nothing that was not given to him. He knows that Jesus is at the center of all creation. When things go wrong, John is not taken aback by it because John knows everything that is happening in this theater of redemption is not ultimately removing Christ from His throne, but Jesus is still ruling and reigning and at the center of all things. So anything can happen in this life and creation is still doing what it is intended to do and that is to declare the glory of God and to show the redemptive power of God to lost sinners. But there's something here I think that's even more astounding. Look in verse 29. The, the one who, John says, the one uh, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, 
this joy of mine is now complete. The one job of the groomsman, contrary to our modern day, is not to do some stupid thing with the ring at the wedding ceremony, though that seems to be the, the going rate these days. The, the, the official purpose of the groomsman is to bear witness to the vows. That, 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 that there is a covenant between these two. And, and I think that what is being taught here clearly is, is that John is rejoicing in the reality he is not the Messiah. Now, you know, the, the way this verse starts, the one who was... Uh, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's a really important verse, friends. The, the groom doesn't have the bride. Or the, 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 the best man doesn't have the bride. In, in uh, this culture, and I, I, I think mostly in our culture, it was a high offense for the best man to steal the bride. That, doesn't, that kind of messes a wedding up. And, and here, John is happy to know that Jesus is coming to his bride. And John is happy to know, ultimately, that the truth of Christ is prevailing. When, when he is told that people are coming to Jesus, his joy is being filled. Friends, the, the reality of the Christian life is that we don't get joy from looking at ourselves and going, Man, we are great spiritual specimens. Our joy is completed as we watch other people come to Christ. We must decrease, but He must increase. And, and I think the verbiage here is really interesting. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What, what, it, what is this voice that is being spoken of here? Well, I think that what is, what is being spoken of here is, is this this bridegroom's voice is an expression that really puts forward everything that is true about Jesus it is, is unfolding before, before the church at this time. Look at verses 33 through 36. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he receives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. You see, John knew that he was a man. He knew that he needed to be enlightened. John knew that John knew what Nicodemus didn't know. And you really got to have a comparison here of seeing the two different people. Nicodemus comes and pats Jesus on the back. There, there, you're a great teacher. I'm the enlightened one. And he's still wrestling with his own pride. But John knows he has been enlightened and he knows that the only hope for humanity is that we receive truth from God. It's, the truth isn't something that we can dream up on our own. It's something that comes from above. John knew that in and of himself he couldn't give light to anyone unless he were first enlightened. Unless he received the gospel, he would not be able to proclaim the gospel. What John has come to know is that Jesus is the true light of the world. Remember again to John chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He, he, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
So as, as the bridegroom speaks, as Jesus is the light of the world, John receives from that fullness the testimony and says, yes, that testimony is true, lives in repentance and faith in light of what Jesus has taught him, and then and only then is he able to speak wisdom into the lives of others. Augustine also, I think, has a helpful uh, little conversation paragraph or so great thought about what does it mean for God to speak what does it mean when we say that God speaks you and I we live in a world that is so far down the road of the fall and the consequences of the fall that we take for granted Dion did you know that before the fall we wouldn't have had to learn a bunch of different languages Um, but in our finite frame now in dispersion all over the world, we have to put syllables together to speak. If, I, if my wife wants to, to communicate something to me, she forms syllables and she says something. And those words convey meaning. Now, Augustine has this way of saying when, when our words fly, they are like sparks. They hit and then they vanish. I've received some words from my wife from time to time that are like sparks and vice versa. Um, but what he's saying is they're temporary. And he says what happens is our words come forward in a moment. They vanish away, but what's left in the wake of our words is our thoughts. And so we are left with these mere you know, fallen means of stringing together syllables to try and convey the truth. But God isn't like us in that respect. Now, in, in Christ we understand that that he spoke as we do and he communicates in that finite language but God is not limited in that sense when, when we understand God speaking it's it's fuller than that some people would ask well does God does God speak in Greek or Hebrew and in some sense the answer is yes and Aramaic too but there's a greater understanding and this is what Augustine points to uh, of God speaking into the universe Augustine says that though our words pass away and our thoughts remain, God's Word abides forever. And what is God's Word? How does He actually speak? Well, if we want to know how God speaks and we want to tie together the reality of what is being said and what John is, I think, glorying in to bring him to a point of humility in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Look, Jesus is the man. He is the groom. He's here for his bride. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. Where is that joy ultimately rooted? How does God actually speak? What is the fullness of the voice of God? Turn to John chapter 1 in verse 1 and we'll hear how God speaks. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Our Heavenly Father, beloved, speaks fluently in the person and work of Christ. If you want to know the language of the Father, you need to look to the Son. You need to see the reality that everything the Son speaks is from ultimately the Father. 
And so as we see the glory of Christ coming into the world, we see a, a grand reality. How do we come to a point of humility? Do we just, do we just try really hard not to let our pride get the better of us? To live a life of humility, do we just evacuate our minds of thoughts about ourselves? Some have said humility is thinking of yourself less. That may be true to a, a certain extent. But friends, I, I would contend with you this morning, lost humanity will always be steeped in pride apart from Christ. It is only when we see Christ in His fullness, it's only as we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is that we can then rightly compare Him with ourselves and we are humbled rightly under His hand. It's only by realizing that Christ came to decrease the glory of man and to bring glory to the Father that we're ever rightly humbled before Him. What do you hear when you hear the truth about Christ? What do you hear when you hear the Gospel? What do you, what do you feel when you hear that you need to repent and believe? Friends, in the early, and, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone here, but it was chilling then and it's chilling to this day, almost eight years off. There's a group of people that were incensed early on in my ministry here and some because of my own personal defects I have no doubt in fact I'm sure of that but part of the what incensed them because it was explained to me multiple times in private discussions and publicly several times you're always saying repent repent we don't need to hear that that should chill us to the core because when Christ is rightly put before listen Beloved, it's easy to get people to believe in a cultural Jesus that they're comfortable with. It's easy to put Bill Regal in a robe and call him Jesus and have him, he's not going to do this, that's why I'm using Bill as an example, uh, but, but, but to play out some, some emotional high of play and say, yeah, that's the Jesus I want. But when you put the biblical Jesus before people and he calls them, listen, Jesus was not this tepid individual. Do you remember what he said to the religious people of his day? You brood of vipers. That's not exactly pastoral, good pastoral theology. You kind of need to be the second member of the Trinity to use that kind of uh, emphasis. But what he's doing is he's leaning into those people that they might repent and believe, that they would turn from their sin of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and being content in and of themselves. Beloved, if you're an individual who's content with your religion, you're content with what you've been through, you're content with your experience, can I encourage you? Repent and believe upon Christ. Be humbled before Him. Trust that He is sufficient and He is good and none other. You see, beloved, what we really learn out of John's, and we're going to deal with this more. I, just, I couldn't get through all of it. Uh, but what, we're, what we really learn here, I think, at the ground of, of everything is, is, and John says it, turn with me, now that I think about it, turn in John chapter 1. Now, oh, this is great. 
That which was from the beginning, which we have, John doesn't change a whole lot. He just morphs how he makes his arguments. That, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the, the, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's talking about Jesus. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Where is our joy completed? Is our joy completed, Cam, in an emotional experience? No. Our feelings are all over the place. I woke up this morning grumpy. I'm pretty happy right now. Is our joy complete, Dallas, with our works and what we can do? Uh-uh. Not when we look to Jesus. Is our joy complete in our theological rigor? Well, not ultimately. Our joy is complete, and this is what I think is ultimately being conveyed through John's humility in John chapter 3. Our joy is complete only in the person and the work of Christ. Our joy is complete in proportion to our understanding the truth about Jesus. The reason theology matters is because good theology reveals plainly who Christ is. And in the moments that we rightly understand our theology, when we rightly understand who Jesus is, we will say what John says here simply in verse 30. He must increase, but we must decrease. It's a very humbling thought, isn't it? Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning knowing that we don't deserve the truth that's in Christ. And yet gloriously, through your word, through your apostles, through the prophets, through ministers throughout the ages, through uh, the Spirit ultimately, you have revealed the truth that is in Christ. You have given your, your church a spirit that is recorded in John chapter 12, verse 21. It comes out plainly, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Father, might we live lives of humility, not seeking to lord over any of our opinions, but simply seeking to know Christ fully and to make him fully known. In Christ's name.